We have a big treat today. We are having a guest speaker from Reservoir, and she is one of the pastors on staff there. So Reservoir is our sister church in Cambridge, and it is the church that Charles helped start many years ago, and that then sent him down here to start the river about 14 years ago. And Lydia is a new addition to the pastoral team. I'm very excited to hear. We had a chance to get to know each other just a little bit uh, when she was here for a Blue Ocean Gathering, and I know that you're in for a treat. So please join me in welcoming Lydia. Oh, thank you. <laughs> that is a warm welcome. Hi, everyone. So, yes, my name is Lydia Shu. Um, I I will place this and then not touch it. Cool. Well, it's so good to see all of you. Um, thanks for having me. Uh, I am new to the East Coast. I just started working at Reservoir in Boston um, in January. And before that, I was in San Francisco um, for about a decade. And so um, it's really cool to be in the East Coast. And it's cool to be close to New York. Actually, I moved here in January. And I've been in New York like already four times. <laughs> so I come here about once a month. So I'm glad to be here once again. And thanks for having me. Um, today, I want to share with you a story uh, in the Old Testament that doesn't get much playtime. It's from the book of Numbers. And it's a short, minor story, but a good one, an important one. So I'm going to read the text for us from the Bible, and then I'll pray to get us started. So the text today comes from Numbers chapter 27, verses 1 to 11. And it's a story about the daughters of Zelophehad. The daughters of Zelophehad came forward. Zelophehad was son of Hepher, son of Gilead, son of Micah, son of Manasseh, son of Joseph, a member of the Manasseh clans. The names of his daughters were Mala, Noah, Hogla, Milcah, and Tirzah. They stood before Moses, Eliezer the priest, the leaders, and all the congregation at the entrance of the tent of meeting, and they said, Our father died in the wilderness, He was not among the company of those who gathered themselves together against the Lord in the company of Korah, but he died for his own sins, and he had no sons. Why should the name of our father be taken away from his clan because he had no son? Give to us a possession among our father's brothers. Moses brought their case before the Lord, and the Lord spoke to Moses, saying, The daughters of Zelophehad are right in what they are saying. You shall indeed let them possess an inheritance among their father's brothers and pass the inheritance of their fathers on to them. You shall also say to the Israelites, If a man dies and has no son, then you shall pass his inheritance on to his daughter. If he has no daughter, then you shall give his inheritance to his brothers. If he has no brothers, then you shall give his inheritance to his father's brothers. And if his father has no brothers, then you shall give his inheritance to the nearest kinsman of his clan, and he shall possess it. It shall be for the Israelites a statute and ordinance, as the Lord commanded Moses. Would you pray with me? Loving and gracious God, 
We come into this place this morning to worship and longing to know you. We come hopeful and expecting and with joy, but also some parts of us tired or cynical and in desperate need of a good word. May you meet us in our need and want. Help us to be present to what you are doing within us right now. Renewing, restoring us as your precious beloveds. In Jesus' name, amen. So I've moved around most of my life. I was born in South Korea and came to the United States when I was nine, and I moved to Georgia. And then in middle school, I moved to Kansas, and then I moved to California end of high school. When I was 16 years old, I lived in Wichita, Kansas. And in freshman in high school, I got to join this uh, group of teen leaders called the Wichita's Promised Youth Council. Uh, They had each high school have two representatives throughout the city. So about 20 of us gathered together, and we tackled issues that adolescents faced in the city. So we arranged a focus study to be done throughout the city, and so we would visit youth groups or juvenile intakes or, um, and, you know, kind of where teens gathered and teen programs, and we would do this focus study and ask them, what are the top three issues that teens face today. And the result of the focus study tally to number one, nothing to do, number two, teen pregnancy, number three, drugs, drug use. And from this study, we concluded that teen pregnancy and drugs stem from the first issue because when you have nothing to do that's fun or healthy, kids tend to have sex and do drugs. So from our findings, we thought of a solution and came up with a club for teens, something fun for them to do. It would have a dance floor, a DJ, and lights, and a game section with uh, arcades and maybe a pool table, even an information center where you can get pamphlets to, you know, things about teen stuff, you know, STDs, drugs, or whatever problems we have. And the proposal was actually taken to the city council, We got to present at the city council meeting. I was even on TV, and we got a grant to build a club. We shopped around for venues and found an old country line dancing club. It is Kansas. That was closing down. And we turned it into a teen club, and it was pretty amazing. I honestly don't remember how we ended up doing all this because I only like vaguely recall one adult being around at all times. And so it's pretty amazing that we accomplished this. And it's one of my most memorable experiences from high school that I've ever had, that when you gather your voices together and your concerns together, you can take action and solve problems and get it done. So I think this is the reason why I love today's passage. Um, and how I find it interesting. And the story of uh, the daughters of Zelophehad, it, it comes from a book called Numbers. I don't know if you've heard of it, but it's not a book that really like, kind of sells itself. Like, who's going to read a book called Spreadsheets? <laughs> I don't know, maybe some of you smart folks might, <laughs> actually. And the book of Numbers, it actually does have a lot of numbers when you try to read it. 
a lot of senses and list of clans, as you kind of saw um, in our reading today, and descendants. And this book of Numbers was a part of the book of laws that followed Exodus. After the Israelites came out of Egypt, Leviticus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy, Deuteronomy captured these laws that were supposed to set them apart as a nation, as a unique people group, and who they are. It sought to create new ways of living as a growing nation, and as they were finding and settling boundaries and guidelines to exist as a people, they wrote these laws up. And today's story captures five women who had the courage to speak about the injustice in their existing inheritance laws. I think the story can show us a few things about how we too can participate in the law of God. And I want to invite us to look at it at three different perspectives. One from the perspective of the daughters and seeing how they carried out their actions and learn from their ways. Second, how Moses and the leaders responded from the perspective of those in power and see how those of us with privilege can respond. And third, how God invites us to join in this, in this invitation to abide in God's law and what that means. So what are the daughters doing? What Moses is doing? What God's doing? So the daughters, Mala, Noah, Hagla, Milka, and Terza. I love that the Bible actually includes their names because usually um, names of female characters are often left out, like the woman at the well or the bleeding woman or most of the genealogy records. Verse 3 says that they approached the entrance of the tent meeting and stood before Moses, Eliezer, the leaders, and the whole assembly. This is significant because the place that they approached, um, it's called the Tent of Meetings, and it was the tabernacle entrance, which means dwelling or presence, tabernacle, meaning that's where God dwelled. It's a holy, sacred place. And it's where only the leaders of the leaders were allowed in. And there were a few different names for this area, and some called it the Holy of Holies. It might have even referred to kind of Moses' kind of personal tent. Either way, it's definitely not a place that a woman would have been welcome to. And sacred buildings uh, or churches often have this very intentional theological uh, reflection behind their architecture, actually. Um, you see, you know, churches around the city, they have high ceilings or, you know, uh, to draw up your eyes. They're built up high to think about the high and lofty one. And the front is usually kind of decorated with the priests to preside over from, from that section. And it's con considered to be a holier place. And many modern churches have kind of developed and we meet in schools now and all kinds of different places. But especially the older ones, there are kind of levels of hierarchy where you could enter, where you could be um, when you were a certain status. And some were thought to even die immediately if you enter that certain place. And the message of Jesus is exactly opposite and upside down of that. He said that, so the last will be first and first will be last. Blessed are the poor, the meek, and those who mourn. And if you've ever been left out or not allowed to enter or rejected, 
or glazed over. This is good news to you. And that's why Jesus offended so many people who were in power, those who were not outcasts. To me, the gospel offers a good news, especially as a woman. Uh, Jesus was always turning things upside down, and I love that. Because you see, for me, I grew up in an Asian culture that really reinforces hierarchy. And I think there's some good and bad to it, to the culture. Um, But to the Korean culture, there was all these kind of hierarchical rules that were always at play. For example, when you uh, meet someone new, you should immediately assume that they're older than you and you speak in the formal manner of language. That's respect. And if you are truly older, then there are all these random uh, rules that's actually not even like that antiquated that people just do in the culture. For example, when you're at a bar and you're like drinking together and you do shots and you go, cheers, or you go, come back. And then the younger person has to turn to the side and then drink. <laughs> really, that's what you have to do. Or otherwise it would be rude. Growing up at the dinner table, um, we would have to all sit down, and then I couldn't touch or even pick up my chopsticks before the eldest person picked up their chopsticks. Those were some of the rules. And there are a bazillion hierarchy kind of rules like this that some of them like I don't even know as a Korean-American, and, and then sometimes I feel really out of place. And some of them I really respect and like and kind of retain, and I'm going to teach my children <laughs> But some of them were very difficult. Especially as a daughter, it meant that growing up as a daughter meant that you just got less respect than the sons. And it's not even just in my culture, in my religion. I've been part of Christianity for a while, and I've been told by some that I couldn't be a pastor. I shouldn't teach or preach because women are supposed to not speak in church because they decided to do a reading of Paul's letters to a specific congregation having conflict with especially women at that time that were causing trouble, to mean it as a rule for all women in all generations and all churches the rest of time. But look at me now. (laughs) (laughs) Preaching. And I'm preaching from the front of the building, not from the back. And when I... When I would have, you know, done this in their times or in their context, I would have maybe been like, oh, you could die. That was the danger. They really thought you could die if you entered these certain places that you weren't supposed to. And I do it, I do it with so much honor, and I do it with great respect and humility for the opportunity. Because I know it wasn't my right to be here, but it is a gift that God's great mercy to me, a sinner, was to restore me as one who is a child of God, made in God's image. Honestly, none of us deserves to be the first. That's why I all the more respect these daughters and how they handle the situation. They come to the entrance of the tent of meeting, and says, our father died in the desert. He was not among the Korah's followers, 
who banded together against the Lord, but he died for his own sins and left no sons. Why should our father's name disappear from his clan because he had no sons? Give us property among our father's relative. You see, their plea was to honor their father. They sought to restore their father's name. They defended and pointed out the fact that he was not part of this rebellion that's been going on apparently by this guy named Korah. And they called to his innocence and his, uh, his, his role and his presence in the, uh, in the clan and appealed to his inheritance. How wise and persuasive uh, they were, I think. And, you know, probably a smart, witty way to approach these men who were probably very offended by what's going on. These ladies coming in and expecting, you know, demanding things. But they were humble. They were respectful in the face of injustice. And I think that takes courage. Because courage doesn't look like a superhero in tights rising with epic music in the background and muscles. And I think real courage sometimes looks like stooping low, being humbled in posture and bowed head. And I think for these daughters, it wasn't easy to do that. This thing that they were facing, it wasn't an inconvenience or a small thing. It would have been a tragedy for them to face. Because without the inheritance, they would have no home. They would have no land. They would be pushed out and become homeless. Or probably forced to marry someone to have any chance of surviving. I mean, their family just journeyed through 40 years through the desert, coming out of slavery of Egypt, and right when they were getting to the promised land, Canaan, they would have been excluded just because they lost their father, and now they're losing their house. And even in this desperate situation, their courage was to not lose themselves at the anger in the face of unfairness, but taking extra care, putting graciousness and respect I respect that. So, what about Moses? Upon hearing the daughter's plea, how did Moses respond? Verse 5 says, So Moses brought their case before the Lord as soon as he heard it. His response was, First, take it to God. Maybe he didn't know how to respond. He and the leaders were probably offended that they came unannounced, they were not on the agenda. And Moses probably had to deal with these other elders that were demanding maybe probably some kind of rebuke for the situation. Not knowing what to do, Moses took this to the Lord. And I'm sure he was conflicted about what the right decision is. It had always been passed down to the next of kin who's male. It had never been done this way. The daughters never are the heirs of the land. Leaders who really listen to the voice of the oppressed absolutely have to rely on courage to carry on a just way. Giving the land to the daughters were not just a matter of generosity or charity. It rubbed up against their very laws that sought to mirror God's just way for God's people. They had a lot of intention behind these laws. And Justice, I don't think, come easily. It may not even be obvious. It goes against the grain. 
And it's even different from doing good works or charity or volunteering or even helping the needy. I think deep, transformative, life-changing justice conflicts with us, conflicts with even what's natural or what's always been done. What was traditionally thoughtful, thought as lawful, were challenged by people's experiences and voices crying out that is real and standing in front of them. Reinhold Niebuhr, an American theologian and pastor from 1930s, talks about this justice rooted in deep love in his work called Justice and Love, Love and Justice. He says this, he says, justice requires discriminate judgment between conflicting claims. And he talks about the various forms of uh, justice in which love can be expressed. And in it, he includes form of charity and philanthropy, but makes a case that is a higher form of love as doing justice. He says, love in the form of philanthropy is in fact on a lower level than a high form of justice. For philanthropy is given to those who make no claims against us, who do not challenge our goodness or our disinterestedness. An act of philanthropy may thus be an expression of both power and moral complacency. An act of justice, on the hand, requires humble recognition that the claim that another makes against us may be legitimate. Mere good works doesn't take courage. It actually makes us feel good to do it. But to really hear someone that you may not agree with at first, to listen to the cries of the oppressed and really hear it from their perspective, actually, I think, takes courage. Because it it, it challenges us. It conflicts with what we thought we knew already about what is good and morally right And when we hear these things, we can be conflicted. That's okay. And take it to the Lord. Trusting that Holy Spirit is doing some work within us and speaking truth to our times. And to submit our knowledge, what we think was so brilliant and that's the way we thought, and submit it to the Holy Spirit, I think, takes courage. The courage to be humbled. The courage to take a cost to ourselves. The courage and the power of love. Not with just giveaways that's convenient to us, but love sacrificially towards retributive, restorative justice for others. And you might be thinking, yeah, the leaders, the people in power need to hear this. And I'm like the daughters of Zalifahad. I need to speak up with courage and respect and humility. But I want you to imagine yourself, uh, putting yourself in the place of Moses for a moment. Because actually, many of us are in place of power. We hear the voices of oppressed and crying out, and we just say, well, I'm not in power. It's those people's fault. Government, the leaders, the corporations, the rich. They need to do something. But you do. You do have power. You live in one of the most powerful cities in the world with access and privilege beyond imagination for most people in the world. 
And right where you are, you always have the power to stand up for those who have less voice than you. What does it look like for you to speak up, to stir things in your realm of influence? Is it inconvenient? What does it look like for you to speak up against the systems that actually, frankly, has worked for you? Or even smaller, brief spaces of meetings or small interactions with groups of friends or colleagues? When a woman shows discomfort and sexual jokes, maybe you aren't offended, but do you say something to the guy? When someone's idea gets co-opted in a meeting and somebody else speaks over them and you see that happening and power dynamic, do you speak up? Do you point it out? Or do you just go with it? When the housing market or the economy is crashing down on certain people and you hear the stories of struggle in various fields, but it doesn't affect you because you already have a home. Do you care? We hold so much power and privilege in our own realms and places of influence. And when someone speaks up about their experience and it frankly doesn't affect you, what do you do about it? I think it might take courage to take it to the Lord and take courage to get passionate about something that you weren't passionate about before? Do you get passionate about injustices that doesn't affect you? Do you care? I think there's something to be learned about the way Moses handled the situation. He was humble enough to not immediately respond and jump to conclusion, but wrestle the issues with God. And especially that things that he's not sure of or uncertain and that might not even touch him personally. Do you see these voices? Do you hear these voices? Do you pay attention to them? Do you pray about those people's issues in your prayer? How can we bring their conversations into our conversations with God? Wrestling on their behalf. Last point, what is God doing in this story? God is promising to us that even the least likely one of us are to be the heirs of the land. The inheritance of the land to the daughters has this real spiritual significance behind it because the promised land was not only just a place to live, but it it was a dream, an actualized dream of this new Jerusalem where they will be in fellowship with God. It wasn't just about where you live, but who you were in relationship to God. Not who you... it, It was not only about the daughters of the Zelophehad and what they're saying, but God goes further to make a decree of the land and says, this is how it will be permanently. It says, you shall give his inheritance to the nearest kinsman of his clan, and he shall possess it. Nearest kinsman. And here in this story, 
Even the daughters are counted as kin. That's how God's realm works. That's how God's promised land works. That we are all included as kins. In the last few decades, uh, biblical scholars have come to wrestle with the word that's pretty central to the gospel, the kingdom of God. This word kingdom is used in our English translation of the Bible to describe God's reign, God's promised land, God's realm, a land that is under God's love and God's law. But it's also been problematic, as words often get, due to lost in translation. And as a person who's bilingual, things do get lost in translation all the time. Like, there are Korean pun jokes that are so funny, but I cannot explain them to you. Like, what did the car say to the bread? And it's like, bang, bang, because the bread in Korean is bang. It's the automatopoeia of the car horn and the Korean bang, bread. So it's really funny, but, you know, it's not that funny. (laughs) And so things get lost in translation. We use this word kingdom, and the word kingdom has, it has its relationship in roots of uh, human structures and human governance. And it it draws from this familiar economy of power to mankind. Um, A king is a ruler and people its subjects. But the thing is, the kingdom of God that Jesus talked about was a whole new different kind of a place than we can imagine. It was actually kind of like an un-kingdom, you know, anti-kingdom, where peace reigned. But there was no subjugation. But the, the word kingdom, it still conjures up our historical memories of power, war, hierarchy, domination, which goes to undermine the heart of God's promised land. It's frankly inaccurate translation. Nowadays, many strands of theologians have begun to use this word kingdom, K-I-N-D-M, or like kinship. Or kinsmen. And it's, it was popularized by a Murist, a theologian named Ada Maria Asasi Diaz, who bore theology out of the experience of Latin American women. And her work of expounding this word, kingdom, is biblically rooted in the faith that God does not seek to oppress us, but liberate us into living a radically different life than the ones we know now. That we are all kins, family. In Matthew chapter 12, uh, Jesus has this moment where he's teaching with the disciples and talking with them about ministry. And someone, you know, says, hey, your mother is looking for you outside. And he turns to his disciples and says, these are my mothers and my brothers. These are my mothers and brothers. It is the inner relatedness that defines us as children of God. It's not how to be, it's who we are. It's not the laws, it's the relationship. And the kingdom of God isn't about just the laws to follow, but the point is that we are God's children which changes everything about how we should live. It changes the laws. You are God's beloved daughter. You are God's beloved son. 
You are God's beloved child. And you will have my inheritance. Do you believe that? The story of the daughters of Zelophehad invites us to be completely part of, without exclusion, as one of God's own children in the kingdom of God. What is God doing in this story? He is making us heirs to the kingdom. Like the daughters of Zelophehad, let us seek justice with humility. Like Moses and the leaders, let us listen to the voice of the oppressed and bring their case to the Lord. But above all, as we do all of any of these things, remember God's promise for you that God welcomes all and no one is excluded. And you, you have a place in God's kingdom. May we live our lives deeply rooted in that knowledge as we usher in and participate in God's kingdom here and now, today. Let me pray for us. Jesus, you are the light of the world. What are merry human beings that you are mindful of them? Oh, that's right. You've adopted us as your children. And you delight in us and you love us. You're so in love with us that you gave up everything for us. Help us to receive you now and again. To welcome you in our daily lives. To every part of our lives. With your kindness, your law, and your love. We pray. Amen.